0: <clears throat> let's begin with our young ones. Young ones, if I can have your attention, I'm going to tell you what this passage is going to be about, and what the sermon's going to be about. So uh, let's start with this way. Uh, who here has seen the movie Tangled about Rapunzel? Kids, adults, yes, Tangled. Okay, whether or not you like it, I love it. But you just remember real quick, like it's, it's uh, Rapunzel when she's just a baby, she's stolen away from her family and she's locked up in a tower uh, to hide her away from the world. But remember the, the tower cannot hide everything uh, from Rapunzel and uh, her mom and dad, her real mom and dad, the king and queen, what they do is they light thousands of these floating lanterns every year on her birthday. In the hopes that Rapunzel, their little girl, is going to see these one day, and that it'll lead her home. Okay, in one year she she realizes the lanterns, like that they they're for her. They're meant for her. They're leading her somewhere. They're leading her to the home that she has always longed for. Okay, now you got to go home and see how it ends. I'm not going to spoil it. But uh, okay, but here's what does that have to do with you? I think you know something of what Rapunzel feels in that. Uh, who here has ever gotten homesick? Okay, okay. If like, you ever been to camp? You go to summer camp? Some of y'all just got back from summer camp? Or even if you go and you spend the night out with a friend, or, or you, just, you spend the night away from mom or dad, and, uh, and you get homesick, right? I get homesick when I have to leave uh, the family. I want to go home. Okay, when do you stop getting homesick? Come on, when do you stop getting homesick? <laughs> what do you think? It's not a trick question. When you get home. <laughs> right. When you get home, you stop feeling homesick. Okay, okay, okay. But when do you start to stop feeling homesick? Like if you've ever been to camp and you felt a little homesick, like when did you start to oh, I don't feel homesick. Ah, uh, it's gone. When? When you Come on, kids. Guess. When you get home, you stop getting homesick, but when do you start to stop getting homesick? When you're on your way home? Why why is it when you're on your way home, you stop because why? Bam! Luke! Yes! Because you're with your parents. Like as soon as you see your parents, you're like, ah, oh, okay. Like the homesickness starts to wear away. You start feeling back at home as soon as you are with your mom or as soon as you are with your dad, like because that's home. Okay, so Paul the Apostle, he's going to tell us today that right now we are all homesick for heaven, which is really kind of weird. Y'all, last question why is that weird that Paul the Apostle, the Bible's going to tell you, hey, you're homesick for heaven? Why is that weird? Have, Paul, have we ever been to heaven? No, I've never been to heaven. We've never been to heaven, and yet the Bible says, yeah, 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 but you are homesick for heaven. And you're homesick for heaven. And it's kind of like, we're kind of like Rapunzel in that way. We're homesick for a home we've never been to. Even though you've never been there, that's where Jesus is. And you know Jesus. Kids, you guys know Jesus. Like you know he is your king, you know he is your lord, you know he is your savior. You know that he came down from heaven to live for you and to die for you in order to get you to heaven. Because that's where your real home is because you belong with him. And you know that he you know he loves you more than anything. And you know he is going to get you to heaven at the very end. No matter what, he's going to get you there to be with him forever. Okay, so Whenever you feel like you're sad in life, whenever you feel like, man, this life is really hard, did you know that is homesickness? That is you longing for home, heaven, and the good news is Jesus is going to get you there. That's what Paul is going to tell us today. That's the gospel. We have a home waiting for us with our Lord and Savior who we will get to be with forever and ever and ever. It is coming because he has done it. We're in our summer series in 2 Corinthians. This is the letter the Apostle Paul writes after 1 Corinthians. First uh, and 2 Corinthians, they're written to the same church, but if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know 1 and 2, they're, they're really, really different letters. 1 Corinthians, it deals with all of these issues, like one right after another. 2 Corinthians deals with one issue. This one issue that the church no longer likes Paul. They don't like Paul anymore because they do not like his message. They don't like... The gospel. That's what we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up, please stand for the reading of God's word in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read the first 10 verses and then skip down to the last couple verses of chapter 5. Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, So what we, what we talked about two weeks ago, two weeks ago in chapter four, Paul is still talking about here at the beginning of chapter five with this simple metaphor about a tent. This is Old Testament imagery. It, it, uh, you know, the tent, the tabernacle stuff in the wilderness after Israel comes out of Egypt. If you don't know that history, that's okay because the metaphor, it's basic. It's, it's a simple metaphor. A tent is a shelter, right? It's, it's, it's a shelter made of skin or fabric, and it's super easy to take down. Uh, sometimes they'll even collapse on themselves. And, and a tent, is a sh- it's a temporary shelter by design. It's supposed to be temporary. Okay, your body, my body, is like a tent. It's a shelter made of skin with some fabric thrown on, and our bodies are super easy to take down. They even collapse in on themselves. We get hurt. We get sick. We die. And this stuff happens relatively easy to us. My doctor just told me I have to stop playing kickball or my back is going to go out again and my body will collapse in on itself. And I'm really good at kickball. Uh, and, like, and, and so I'm not t- like, it comes. It comes for all of us. And I'm not telling you something you don't know. Like, you know my kickball skills. Uh, like, you know your tent likeness so we diet we exercise we (laughs) convince ourselves we love dad bods we we opt for surgery you know on and on and on and on this stuff goes because your body is getting weaker and it is decaying by the second Uh, that's why we don't like mirrors the older we get and even instagrammers who love instagram they also love filters and editing and airbrushing okay and, and thank God for our doctors. Truly thank God for our doctors who keep us healthy longer. But they can, only, they, will tell you, they can only delay the inevitable. Because your body, like a tent, it's a temporary shelter by design. So bad news here at the beginning. But right here, too, Paul also gives us the good news and tells us what hope there is. Right there in that verse, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. We have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So yes, you, you are headed for the grave, but God will get you out. Bodily, he will get you out. You will be raised from the dead and given a new body, and it won't be like a tent, not like the tent we're in now. You will be like a building, clothed and adorned like a house, he says in verse 4. A house not made by human hands, a house made by God to be everlasting. That is, you will get a body that is a permanent structure. So now we pause, and we want to ask, okay, wait, now what about that in-between time? What happens when you die? Paul does not ever say a whole lot about what happens to our souls when we die and our bodies go into the grave, what we call this intermediate state. What little the Bible says, the Bible says a little about this, what little the Bible says is that death is an intermediate rest for the Christian, an intermediate rest from the suffering and from the evil of the world where our souls are caught up to heaven to be with Jesus the moment you die. And you're there with Jesus until Jesus comes again at the end to raise us bodily. And this waiting, we are told, in heaven, it's short. It's a short waiting. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about that intermediate state because it's not the final state. Revelation 6, at the end of the Bible, it gives us one of the the most inside looks at, at what everyone is doing in heaven right now. Uh, Everyone there is enjoying a new freedom from death and from sin and evil in heavenly paradise. But everyone is looking at Jesus with longing, asking, saying, like, this this is paradise. This is awesome. And when are you going to go back to judge the living and the dead and give us physical resurrection? When are you ushering in the new heavens and new earth? When are are you going to abolish this divide between heaven and earth and then make it all new? Heavenize all of creation. When? When? Let's go, let's go, let's go. Go read that. That's going on in in Revelation 6. That's what's going on right now. And that is is the hope. If the physical, bodily resurrection of, of Christianity, if that is not our ultimate hope, then you have to admit that all evil and all suffering, everything you see, everything you experience, it's pointless. It is meaningless. It is meaningless because without physical resurrection, death wins. All of the pain, all of the horror, it it wins. And you also have to then admit that all the good stuff, like everything good you're doing in your life, all, all of your work, uh, your family, your relationships, all of the physical joy and work you're putting that's also meaningless. If all we are headed for is a spiritual, bodiless eternity, then there's no point to any of it. God's creation, it was a bad idea. His physical creation not such a great win, is total failure. God loses. There is no justice. There is no resolution to any of the physical horror that we now suffer and that we see around the world. If there is no resurrection, what we usually what we y'all, what we usually think of as the end-all be all, this intermediate state of our souls going into heaven, yeah, our bodies going into the into the ground, that is not the future hope that Paul is talking about here. That is not the hope that Paul is talking about, about a bodily existence in the presence of Jesus forever. That's what he's talking about. In verse 8, Paul says, we are of good courage, and we, listen, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That is not talking about the intermediate state, away from this body. He means we would rather be away from this tent-like body and at home with the Lord the home that God builds, resurrection life. And this is curiouser and curiouser when you think of home, like what we talked about with the young ones. Don't you, like, don't you think of your home, that place where you live, that place where you've been a bunch of times, like, that's home. And when we ask people, like, when they've just moved into a new home, one of the first things we ask when we go and visit them in their new home is, hey, do you feel like you're at home yet? Like, it's that place that you know, that place where you live, you've been there for a long time. So, how does Paul refer to a place like heaven as home, a place we have never been? And it's, yes, yes, heaven is our final destination, yes, but here Paul is really focusing on, he says, we're homesick for a place we've never been because of the person we know who's already there. We're homesick for heaven because that's where Jesus is. And you know Jesus. You know Jesus is the one that you belong with. And you already know him, though you do not see him. You know him. You already experience the love and the grace and the fellowship of Jesus right now here on this earth. In this tent-like body. You know him and you know his salvation You know he left his home of heaven to come to earth to live for you, and he did not live an easy, comfortable life. He lived this tent-like life that we live. He lived a hard life. He lived a poor life. He lived a lonely life, a life of suffering, and he lived it perfectly He lived the way you and I should live, and He lived that way for you and for me. And then you know, then He died for you, suffering all that you and I deserve to suffer for our sins on that cross, being banished on that cross so that we are not banished, so that we are actually welcomed home. And you know He is not dead. You know He beat death, you know He beat your sin. You know that Jesus is alive, and now he is with you and with you in and through all of the hard, he is persevering you, and you know he's going to get you home, where he will make everything right, and he will remake you good and strong and beautiful to be with him forever. You know Jesus, and you know he loves you. Well, Jesus is in heaven right now, and heaven is so identified as being with Jesus that we really and truly experience a taste of heaven, a taste of our home here on earth as we experience his love and his grace. So that thing of home is where the heart is. Well, your heart, Christian, is with Jesus. So Paul can say in verse 5, He who has prepared us for for this very thing, this future, is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You have a real sense of that home life with Jesus, with the Spirit. So yeah, you're homesick for Jesus, and you're homesick for heaven where Jesus is, and the guarantee is the whole thing, it is coming. You are homeward bound, and there is no home if Jesus isn't there, and that's what heaven is is being with Jesus. And then you get to verse 10. And one of you in anticipation of this chapter emailed me, simply troubled by 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Because it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, Paul gives us all this hope, only to take it all away at the very end in verse 10 seemingly. Hey, being raised to new bodily life and being with Jesus physically, that is our hope. But you don't really want to be with Jesus and stand before God because you are going to be judged for everything you did in the earthly body. It's question mark. I mean, let's ask, will, will all people, will every person who has ever lived stand before the judgment seat of God One day? Yes. Okay. What hope do we have again? Paul is not describing two kinds of Christians here one with good works and one with bad works. Paul is describing two kinds of people Christians and non Christians. He's describing those who have done good works as Christians and those who have done bad works as non-Christians. As in, when Christians stand before God on Judgment Day, it will be to receive their reward for the work, the good works Jesus has worked in them through the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit. This is God crowning the fruit of your faith the fruit of your faith, that he has worked in you. Another pastor said it like this, God is crowning his own works by crowning what he has done in us. So Paul is not trying to scare Christians here. That's not the point. He says that this is something we should actually look forward to. And what he's really doing here is he is opposing what the Corinthians are hearing right now. The health and wealth preachers back in Corinth that Paul's opposing, the health and wealth preachers say that your reward, you're looking, the the reward that you're looking for, the reward that you're looking for from Jesus is to be had in this life right now. If you're looking for health, you're looking for wealth, you're looking for prosperity, you are looking for success, and Jesus will give it to you. And Paul says, No, that's not true. Paul says our hope for reward is not in this life. He says you get that reward when you stand before God, Christian, and you're ushered into home to be with Jesus. The so what for us is is this future hope means we will presently, future, future hope, we presently groan. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So the pain and the hurt and the shame and the longing you're feeling and you're experiencing every day, it is valid. Like, it's true. It's real. You're not crazy. Whenever you struggle in this life, whether or not you realize it, you are groaning for heaven. You are homesick. It's not that you're a super Christian who has figured out your best life now full of success. Faith is not the absence of groaning. Faith is groaning that keeps going, that keeps faithing. And that's the evidence and the love and the power of Jesus in your life in the midst of what it is you're going through. It's that you're still here loving Jesus. It's that you're still here proclaiming, yeah, he is Lord and Savior. As you wait for the glory to come. And another so what for us is Paul says in verse 6, and he says again in verse 8, that this future hope, it gives us courage. Great courage presently. Because it takes a lot of, another pastor has put it it takes a lot of courage to stick with Christ if you're not going to get any reward in this life. Like it takes a lot of courage to stick with Jesus if all you're going to get in this life is suffering. If following Jesus is going to get you rejection among family and friends and with the cultural elite of this world, which seems worse to us than being rejected by family and friends, um, you're going to need courage for that. If if sticking with Jesus is going to cost you at work because you refuse to gossip or you refuse to lie or you refuse to take shortcuts and and cheat, you're going to need courage. If sticking with Jesus is going to get you labeled as a bigot If proclaiming the gospel is going to identify you with hate speech that incites violence, that's going to take courage. And just think just being here with those people sitting next to you and across from you, uh, how do we serve here at church when other brothers and sisters fail to meet our expectations? When we really do fail each other and God is telling us to keep serving one another. That's going to take courage. How are you going to trust God if, if he's nodding his head yes to all of this to all, and saying he is not promising you that it is all going to work out for you in this life? It's going to take courage, which you can have with this future hope that your reward is coming when Jesus comes. And What if you don't believe this? What what if you do not believe in Jesus? What if you do not have this future hope? what is not having this future hope do to you? Well, one, the unbeliever knows that death is not right. Everybody, both the Christian and the non-Christian, we know that death is not right. Everybody knows this because everyone was created by God with this longing for heaven. And that longing is It can be suppressed, but it is there, which is why everyone clamors with that big question of the meaning of life and death, which is why everyone, uh, whether or not you have this hope, wants to talk about justice and wants to talk about fighting evil. We we, We just disagree over what's evil and what's just and who is just. That sense of right and wrong, that is also from God, and it's in each and every single one of us, but people can suppress, suppress that too because if we were to admit that it's all from God, then we'd also have to admit that we're guilty, and then we'd have to admit that God is God, and we are not, and we've done wrong, and we stand condemned. So, so many across the world, us too, we're out there desperately trying to justify ourselves, because deep down, if I know if I know that evil needs to be punished, then I need to prove that I'm not evil. I'm a good person. It's where you get virtue signaling. I'm on the right side; those who disagree are on the wrong side. And then others will suppress this. Others will suppress a- a- this truth and give up all hope and give in to meaninglessness. Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's be merry, because tomorrow we're just going to die. And then they spend the rest of their self-indulgent lives with this nagging conscience that God has given them. This this sense that they're still guilty, and so they keep suppressing their conscience. Some do it to the point where they don't hear it anymore. So what hope is there? It's this. It's this hope. That, That longing, it is true. Yes, there's right and wrong. Yes, you're guilty, but God is full of grace. And he sent his son to stand in our place and take our guilt and all our condemnation for our guilt on himself. This is what he did in his life. This is what he did in his death. And if you believe in him, this faith, it will sustain you. It'll sustain you in this life. In this hope of a glorious resurrection and eternal future with Jesus, that's what's going to give you courage in this life. And you really can't have it. Anyone can have it. This is why he said he reconciled the world to himself, all peoples, every kind of person. This is because this longing is in every person, and you can long with hope. I heard this, I heard this uh, story first, and then I, I went to look it up to see if it's true. It's, it's a really true story. In the early 1900s, there was a little girl named Daisy who grew up in a uh, bad part of Chicago. She was number eight out of ten children. Poor family. Uh, and money got tighter when the dad started drinking. And the father became a very mean drunk, very angry, violent drunk. And Daisy remembers, uh, she just remembers cowering in the kitchen every night he came home. She remembers uh, the night her dad kicked her baby brother and sister across the kitchen floor. But the worst day of her life was the day the dad came home and told the mom she was out. Wanted her out of the house. And the kids are hysterically crying, begging their dad to change his mind as they watch their dad march their mom out of their house with a suitcase in each hand. Some of the kids, uh, some years later, some of the kids end up rejoining their mom, some end up living with relatives, but one child draws the short straw, one child has to stay back with dad, and it's Daisy. And she hated her dad, And the bitterness, it grew and it grew and it grew. And when Daisy was old enough, she fled and her dad vanished until one night he showed up drunk and cold at a Salvation Army rescue mission. And to get his free meal, he had to attend a worship service Uh, and he hears the gospel. And to his own shock and surprise, when the preacher asks if anyone wants to accept Jesus, he says he does and he did, and it stuck, and he got sober, and he resolved to track down each one of his 10, ten children and ask their forgiveness. He, couldn't defend, he said he couldn't defend himself. He could not make it right. He was so sorry for the horror of a dad. He was so sorry for all of the damage he had inflicted on each one of them, so sorry for destroying their family, and at first they, they, they write him off uh, it, it's a fad. It's a scam. He just wants money. So they refuse his letters. They refuse to meet with him. Uh, but over time they realize this guy really does love Jesus and his life really has changed. And one by one, they're each reconciled to him. Each one, except Daisy. And, uh, the last five years of his life, he lived with Daisy's sister, same street, eight doors down for five years and Daisy never, walked by that house almost every day, Daisy never, she refused to ever see her dad. In the last year, Daisy's dad, he's dying, and uh, they hear this, they hear the news, and Daisy still refuses to go see her dad, uh, but she lets her five-year-old daughter, Margaret, to go uh, and say goodbye. And when Margaret knocks on the door... Uh, the old man opens the door, he looks down on Margaret, and he says, Daisy. And crying, he says, oh, Daisy, you've come to me at last. And the author, who's chronicling this, this story from Daisy herself, ended with this observation. Her dad wanted it so bad, he was hallucinating grace. And the good news is, you do not have to hallucinate grace. You can have it with Jesus. And Paul implores us, be reconciled to God. It is your great longing, and you can long with hope. Let's pray. Father, we, we've, whether or not we realize that we've come here this morning because we're longing, we're longing for you, we're longing for our Lord and our Savior and to be with Him. We're longing to come home. And, Father, it feels like such a long time to wait. And it feels so long, uh, it feels like we, we may not make it. So we pray. We pray today that you would, again, bless us, uh, preserve us in this faith, knowing that you, you didn't abandon us. You came for us. You've not abandoned us now. You are with us, Father, that, that you will. Get us home. Help us to look at the cross and know that if you didn't fail there, you will complete your work. Lord, this longing, we pray that it it wouldn't go away, that it would get stronger, but as our longing gets stronger, our joy would also grow. Uh, Father, in our joy for one another and being around one another and encouraging one another, that that too would grow because we share the same longing because we're all homesick. Lord, what helps, what makes it better, too, is we're not waiting here alone. We're homesick, but we got each other. We got family here, and we know we're coming home. We long to be with our Lord and Savior, our older brother, our King. Father, preserve us. We pray today, tomorrow, the next day, for as long as you tarry. uh, Preserve us. In Christ's name, amen.